Hello and welcome to the Becoming Podcast. I am your host, Anne Fancy, and I am really, really grateful you're here. This podcast is a place where deep, raw, and vulnerable conversation is commonplace. We're here to help illuminate the collective consciousness, to get really thinking deeply about how we live and whether or not that is in alignment with who we are, with our soul's deepest intent and highest path. I hope these conversations stir you to contemplate your own life, to help you step forward into a braver and brighter version of you. And I hope that you can see and hear that this is not always an easy, light-filled or direct path, but often it's winding and the shadows and challenges that we face allow us not only to build strength, but to help us really truly forge ahead into the highest and best path for you. Again, I'm just so grateful you are here. And if you are enjoying this podcast, I would so appreciate that you rate it and subscribe. And of course, share it with others who you think would resonate with what we talk about in this space. If you're looking to join me in conversation and be part of a community, I did start a Facebook group called The Becoming Community, and I'd love to have you in there and keep these conversations going in a different forum. Thank you again for listening and sharing and subscribing. Let's get to today's episode. I think you are going to love today's guests. I know I love today's guest. Her name's Barbara Payton, and I've known her for quite a while now, but you may know her as the Detroit singer-songwriter with a sultry voice and uh, just a total badass vibe. She's been singing uh, backup for Bob Seger for the last 13 years, and more importantly, she is a deep thinker and a wise woman and um, just a beautiful soul. So we go all over the board from religion to soul's purpose and music industry and beyond. I think you're going to love it. So uh, tune in and uh, let's get to it. All right. Welcome. I am here today with my friend Barbara Payton, and um, I'm grateful that we were able to make this work this time. And <laughs> timing is perfect, right? So it welcome. took us a while. I think about, what, three times? At least, yes. This is a charm. <laughs> yeah. So um, Barbara and I met through some friends a long time ago, back um, when I was in my 20s looking for odd jobs when the economy <laughs> sucked. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew you because you were a big deal in the lesbian scene, quite frankly. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. The very famous Barbara Payton would play at the lesbian bars, or at least at Como's in Ferndale. Within a 15-mile right? radius, at least. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's when you hit it big, right? <laughs> yeah, the, what, the railroad crossing, which became the Rainbow Room, which is no more. Is it no more? I didn't even know I that. I think it's, yeah, I don't oh think my it's gosh. in existence anymore. Well. I don't know where the lesbians go anymore. I don't know either. When you find out, let me know. Okay. Well, <laughs> when you find out, I won't go because I stayed home with my kids. Well, you are married with <laughs> yeah. a child. Yeah. I am not. Okay, fair enough. Um, so how did you, how did you end up in music is probably the first question. <sighs> my friends are tired of hearing this story, but both of my parents are retired music teachers. Okay. And so it wasn't a matter of, are you going to be in music? It's, what are you going to migrate toward? Are you going to be a singer? Are you going to play an instrument? So I started with singing, and then I learned how to play several different instruments through the Salvation Army brass mm -hmm. band. And uh, I also grew up within the Salvation Army, which is not just us standing on street corners with kettles. We There's actually a church, mm -hmm. and it has a brass band and percussion, and I was in the... It's called, it was called the Scene Company when I was a kid. Okay. And their choir. And 
I loved growing up in that atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And it really was the foundation of my musical experience and my foundation of the just coming up throughout music and, and learning about music and learning how to harmonize in the choir. And mm-hmm. I'm grateful. Yeah. Yeah. You've been very, um, you've taught me uh, a lot on that perspective because, you know, there's so much bad press about the Salvation Army and this time of year, it's very Mm -hmm. appropriate. And there were a couple of years where I was like, same feeling I have about the Boy Scouts was, you know, that I'm just gonna, I can put my money elsewhere. Yes. And you've been excellent at helping educate the rest of us. Um, you know, that, that simple reminder that one voice doesn't speak for the whole organization and, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. So give us your your perspective on that. Yeah, I've been posting about that for the past, I don't even know how many years, maybe six years or so, when I heard people in the gay community, the LGBTQ community, talk about not supporting the Salvation Army. And yes, we all have the right to place our money where we think is it's going to do the most good. Um, but with the Salvation Army, as my cousin explained to me, there was a, an incident And it wasn't even in the United States, not that that's uh, significant, but where uh, there was someone that turned away um, members of our community and they were reprimanded and the Salvation Army is actually trying very hard to extend the olive branch, so to speak, and um, make reparations with our community. And so I applaud them for that. And yes, if you look deeply into any organization, any church, sure you are going to find those that do not support others that are not like them. Mm-hmm. And so being a former member of the Salvation Army, um, I go as often as I can during the holiday season and help with the canned food drive and mm-hmm. getting toys together and packages for families to come in and, and pick up. And <laughs> I have taken many members of the lesbian community with me. Yeah. And they knew very well that we were gay and um, embraced us. And they've embraced me my entire life. There have been times when I've had altercations with certain members that I think that they thought perhaps that being gay is a sin and Mm -hmm. that they wanted to help save me. But I made it very clear to them early on that my God is a loving God and a God that embraces all. And it's not their place to judge me. Yeah. And that was the end of the conversation. Right. And so I have a deep appreciation and love for the Army. I know what they do, how they help people, and their thrift stores actually help something called the ARC, the Adult Rehabilitation Center. Mm. And that has been one of the things that the Army has been based on throughout their existence um, when they started up in England is helping people to get into recovery. Okay. And I applaud that because as a musician, yeah, you know, I, it's rampant in my industry. Sure. Um, Alcoholism and abu- drug abuse and correct. Yeah, addiction in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so how did you, um, how did the growing up in the church shape your life? Mm. Are your parents really devout? What, what is, does the Salvation Army have any um, direct, like, you know, Christianity is a big umbrella. Where are, Protestant. where are they fall? Protestant. Okay. And yes, my parents are very devout Christians and... I, as a child, loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved the music program. I loved how many just accomplished musicians that I was able to study under and go to music camp every year in Leonard, Michigan for the yeah. Salvation Army. Yeah. And as I became an adult, 
I started to question the religion sure. itself and also knew that I did not feel I would, would be able to discuss my homosexuality openly yeah. without being judged. Yeah. But I also knew that I had to stop judging myself mm-hmm. and be comfortable within my own skin yeah. in order to create a space where others would respect me as well. And how did that unravel? <laughs> how long did that take? When did you know that you were gay? A long time. It took yeah. a long time. I, I knew I was different when I was around eight years old. Yeah. I describe it the same way. I knew there was something different, yeah. but I think there were a lot of things probably different about you and I that weren't just Correct. lesbianism. Yes. Right. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Many things. Yeah. We right. do not have enough time to discuss all of those today. Right. Um, I had a crush on my camp counselor yeah. at church music camp yeah. and never divulged that to anyone. But when all my other girlfriends were going out into the woods to make out with their boyfriends, mm-hmm. um, I'm sure the parents are horrified to hear that now. Yes, it did happen. Yes, it sure did. It's continuing to happen. So I never wanted to go. Mm. I wanted to stay behind with my female camp counselor and help make beds and do all those things that every teenager loves to do. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody clued in. Clean the toilet, right. wanted to clean the toilet, (laughs) whatever she needed done. Yeah. Yeah, so I knew I was different then, and I didn't come out until my late teens. Okay early twenties, my mother asked me and I applaud her for that. Yeah. She asked me directly what my relationship was with a particular woman in my life at that time. Oh my God, I'll never forget Mm. that day sitting at the kitchen table. My heart sank and I told her and she wanted to really come from a place of religion. Yep. And I was not going to have that discussion because once again, I felt that it was, um, between me and my God. Mm-hmm. And she respected that. Yeah. Yeah. And she has embraced, you know, women that I've known over the years and been in intimate relationships with. And, and I appreciate that. And I'm sure that still it does perhaps trouble my family at times because of where I might end up yeah. someday, but I'm not at all concerned. Right. Right. My, I, my experience was very similar, right? Being raised in the church and my mother came at me with religion and I rebutted her with that same religion, you know? And so, um, that conversation stopped pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, how about your father? I think he feels the same. And he also was sad Mm -hmm. when I came out because he thought it was something that he had done. Yeah. And I want to just extend this to any parent that it's nothing that you're doing. There's nothing wrong. Right. You would no more say that to your heterosexual child than you should to your homosexual child. Right. There's nothing wrong with us. God does not make mistakes in, from their perspective and mine as well. And so there's no, there's nothing wrong yeah. with me or nothing. There was nothing that he did, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people have the misconception that um, people are gay because of something that happened to them in their childhood. Yeah. Um, that can impact the trajectory of your life. You can make different choices because of any kind of trauma or any ridicule you Mm -hmm. might suffer because of it, but you're born that way. Yeah. So in my opinion, it doesn't have anything to do with my being gay. Right. I think it's so fascinating too because as um, generations keep going by, um, sexuality is becoming more and more fluid, and I don't 
let me say it this way. I don't think necessarily even that sexuality is necessarily becoming more fluid, mm-hmm. but there's more freedom to honor that fluidity between orientation, gender, and sexuality. Absolutely. And and maybe it is, maybe uh, beings are coming in more evolved and less um, concerned about those confines, mm-hmm. but I think that it's always been this way. It's just been a matter of now people are talking about it and it's part of the mainstream conversation. Mm-hmm. So thank you for sharing that all openly. Did you have to... Um, how was reconciling that for yourself? Did you embody shame or did you always feel like God is a loving God and I don't have to take this on in that way? Or was there negativity? The latter. I always, I've always felt that, um, God is a loving God. Mm -hmm. And the only time I think I've felt not even shame concerning my homosexuality, it's more, it's been about embarrassment Mm -hmm. because I grew up in a family that does, care what other people think. Sure. And I care what other people think. I think when some people say they don't give a shit what anybody thinks mm-hmm. about them, I mm-hmm. think you're either a sociopath or you're lying. <laughs> I think we all care somewhat. To some degree. Yes. It's whether or not it's going to really affect your choices. Yeah. And so when I've held hands in public mm-hmm. with former partners, I would feel uncomfortable from time to time when people would just look at you in yeah. a way that you knew was not approving of your behavior, sure. of who you are. Of your behavior, right. You know, and I remember going to Saga Tuck for many years with my partner, um, Linda, at the time, and uh, loved going there. And then an article was published in mainstream publications, I should say, and a lot of straight couples that maybe weren't as open-minded mm-hmm. as those that have been going to Saga Tech for many years started to show up. And there was a bit of a, there was a time of being uncomfortable yeah. around them. Culture a transitional. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I remember I was angry at that time because I thought, really, how many places do we have to go yeah. where we can be completely open and without worrying about being ridiculed or uh, being in harm's way? Yeah. Yeah. I've been in harm's way before because sure. of it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, um, you've been out for many years now, mm-hmm. right? And so times very have out. Yeah, very it, it out. It doesn't get much more We're out, out right. than me. Right. And maybe that's even, I think that's part of, even so I'm a little younger than you, but even still when we were going to, you know, when I was in my early teens, late teens, early twenties going to the lesbian bars, it was still so different mm-hmm. than it is now. Another five years before it really became, um, even starting to be more open with all of that. So it's, it's very challenging. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think people underestimate how hard it was in um, the 80s, 90s, even early 2000s to be yeah. out. I um, appreciate you saying that and being part of the younger generation that yeah. you are. Because sometimes I do get frustrated because I notice that not all, but many of the younger generations, and my, myself included until I really woke up and yeah. educated myself, we don't always make a point to honor the generations that came before us that paved the way. Yeah. And I do now, and I recognize that more, but I'm more awake in my life too. And that's such a annoying term sometimes to me. It is. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we'll talk about that too. (laughs) Pulling your out of your, you know? Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I think it changes every, every generation is changing it. And my wife is a decade older than I am. And so her experience of coming out was different. And even for me, no one in high school was out when, in 19, late 1990s when I was in high school, no one was out. Um, That's scary. Yeah. Yeah. And I grew up in very waspy, you know, uh, environment. And so 
Yeah, it was a big deal. Um, but it's interesting because I don't meet a lot of people who feel the same way I do, which was I didn't embody shame around it. I didn't it. at all. I always just knew this is who I am, and mm-hmm. I am um, so like it or leave it. And I know this about myself, and I refuse to allow you to put shame on me around it yep. because I wouldn't. I I just I don't know where that came from, other than we were just born into that sort of sense of self. I, I guess because it's certainly not the environment I was raised in. Me neither. You know, homosexuality yeah. was certainly not you know, welcomed or embraced. Mm-hmm. And it's it's no fault of my parents. I, I, I understand. And they were very loving parents. It's just a, they were raised a different way. Right. And right. I guess I think that sometimes the the best thing we could do for our own community is to be out and proud. Yeah. And to not live in shame. Yeah, I agree totally. And, and that I always felt, I've always felt that um, I was going to be out and proud and unapologetic because if I... Um, gave you even one iota of shame, then that gave you permission to shame me about that it. That is exactly where I come from with yeah. that. It's true because before I was really secure within myself, it was easy for others to project their own judgment and shame onto me. Yeah. And I absorbed that at times mm-hmm. and I won't anymore. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. So where does your faith stand now? I would say I'm more of a spiritual person than mm-hmm. a religious person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm still finding my way. Yeah. Yeah, I am. It's it's um, still um, a path that I am not 100% comfortable with because I do support the Army, and there's many good things about um, the church. Sure. Um, and I do think they are embracing the LGBT community more so now than they ever have. Mm-hmm. But there's a long way to go. Yeah. As there is in any organized religion. Yeah. And that's a whole other conversation we could get into. Yeah. And I do have judgment on many organized religions. Yeah. But I also realize, like you said, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yep. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I, I think that uh, we should always question authority. Yeah. And that's how we got into some of these situations that are appalling and need to be, you know, remedied. And and uh, I don't think that um, there are, I, th- I think there are many religions that still have not made amends and that have not done what they need to. Yeah, absolutely. To clean up their mess. Yeah. It's their mess. It's their job to go in and take care of it. Mm-hmm. It's, so. it's really fascinating because um, the other day I found myself looking up the word paradigm because I was, you know, you know words, but you don't, I don't know that I knew the definition. I knew mm-hmm. the concept, not the definition. And it was basically saying like unquestionable rule, right? Um, and I was like, well, that's why I have a problem with that, I right? I have a big problem with that. <laughs> right? Like anything that, that um, is, if, if it's unquestionable, then all it is is just to hold power, mm-hmm. right? And control. And um, I think that, that anything that's really truth and... Um, and I mean like universal truth to, to some degree, or, you know, maybe that even grows and evolves too, but universal truth should be able to stand up to questioning. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all of the paradigms need to go, like all of them basically, you know? I agree. So people having these, people willing to have these kind of conversations and go, listen, it may not be popular, um, but, you know, I think I agree with you hundred percent organized religion. And I, again, the millennials and younger, um, and including I'm a zenial, technically, and mm-hmm. even the Gen Xers, um, everybody's questioning that the church is losing its ground. And mm-hmm. I don't mean for this to be a whole conversation on politics in the church, but I think people are really getting fed up from all of all of this control and rule and blind 
following. Mm-hmm. Um, and by everybody, I mean not at all everybody, obviously. Look at our country and what's happening. But more and more people are becoming vocal around this, and more is getting questioned than ever before. Mm-hmm. And I think we get caught up in the bubble that we live in here, thinking that this is a universal trend. Um, but it is happening in bigger cities and more liberal places that people are really challenging that. It is. And and people are migrating to those cities, the more of the critical thinkers. Yeah. And I think that any organization that has as much power as many of the churches do, they need to be transparent and they need to be questioned. And if they're not all right with that, then there's something that is really wrong yeah. going on within that organization. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think that the, the, the how do I want to say this? I think most of us who are on the spiritual path can appreciate that within those religions is held a whole lot of truth and mm-hmm. that and likely who whomever the the religion was anchored on was also probably a very evolved soul yes. whose teachings just got transmuted uh, or well, that's not the right word got fucked up right? <laughs> <laughs> stolen I was thinking twisted, that I'm glad you said it yeah misused <laughs> yes for power and manipulated control. by humans yes exactly that are flawed and, and that was never the intent mm-hmm. right right that that idea that if if Jesus or Buddha or whoever was to come back and see how people were using yes. those teachings they'd be really they'd be horrified horrified I right? was just having that conversation with some of my girlfriends last night and we were talking about Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And yeah. then they kept singing. I thought, okay, we're in a restaurant. Right, right. You know. Right. <laughs> okay, that was one moment when I did yeah. get a little embarrassed. Yeah. But they're right. And I saw a man at the table next to us just shoot us this look of disdain. Yeah. And I thought, what, how could you even be opposed right. to that idea? Yeah. And it might sound corny, but what would this man, Jesus, think yeah. if he were to come back and see mm-hmm. what is happening within this country right now. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's pretty clear where I stand politically without even saying it, but yeah. I am horrified. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting because uh, my friend Lori teaches me a lot about these sorts of things, but that, you know, ultimately Jesus, uh, I was like, I'll back up one step. You know, my daughter, we don't practice any religion, but we still do a lot of the traditional American holidays, right? Mm -hmm. And you can think whatever you want about that, but um, we just teach her about being a good human and things like that, and we're very spiritual, and we talk about very spiritual things, and... But sometimes, you know, we we drove by the, the big church locally that's got the big, you know, um, cathedral and uh, often crosses outside on the lawn, and mm-hmm. um, and I've tried to explain to her, like, what people do around Jesus and what it is, and I, I basically am always like, he was a really solid dude, like, we really respect who Jesus was and what he was teaching. Mm-hmm. It's just that people have taken that and used it for hate, and so yes. we are not anti-Jesus, we're just not into the organization that was created around him. I think and, that's a beautiful thing to teach her. Well, thank you. I do. So I'm sure it's taken a lot to figure out how to even have these conversations with her. And I think if Jesus came down, he would still be trying to teach us unconditional love and mm-hmm. teaching you and I to be less judgy about how we see it going wrong, but also totally yes. you, like, right. The human version uh, that of, of the experience is like, what the hell are you guys doing with this? Like, yeah. this was never what it was meant for. And I think that of a lot of things, and this is probably again, really like, you know, even Buddhism and even, um, you know, I went to a retreat with the, uh, for at this place that celebrates Yogananda, like anything can be turned into um, a hierarchy of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And so even as we talk about waking up and in this world of spirituality, um, there's still a lot of, 
challenge within that that it's it's still unclear and it's still used for power and control in ways that mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. will say as well, on the flip side, there are many good things that have come out of religion and sure. religious people. And I've seen what it has done in my parents' life mm-hmm. and the good that has brought to their lives and how it has sustained them through some really difficult times as mm-hmm. well. And I honor that. Yeah. And also, I feel that we should always question authority and mm-hmm. any organization that becomes so powerful that people are so intimidated and not willing to, you know, delve deeper yeah. into the underbelly. Yeah. That they become blinded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The blind following. Yeah. Yeah. That's really what scares me the most, I think. Is that that people... would not be me. No. <laughs> me neither. Me neither. Question my brother, everything. My one brother jokes about how, yeah, I think my bra, my sister is going to become Barbara Streisand from Meet the Fockers. Like, I'm just not going to have a filter. And yeah. I think he's correct. Yeah. As well, I get older. <laughs> I love that. I've rarely had a filter to start with. So, you know. it's. <laughs> I did for far too long. And then yeah. my life took a 180 years ago and I just decided I'm done. Yeah. So I'm let's... done. And I think sometimes people do mistake kindness for weakness. And mm-hmm. I have definitely silenced myself for many years because I've been not sure of myself and easily intimidated mm-hmm. by powerful people mm-hmm. or people that are very controlling at times. And I did myself and those in my life a disservice. Yeah. And that's when I just flipped. So what made that, what, what happened when you flipped? What made it happen or what happened when I did? Yes. <laughs> Both. <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah. Um, I, it was the perfect painful storm mm-hmm. where my relationship of 12 years dissolved and had been for many years. And that happened three years ago and we broke up and. I also was starting to care for my mother mm-hmm. who was having some cognitive issues and I was starting to see certain challenges in her life that I did not notice in the past. And I was purchasing a new home on my own for the first time because I've purchased other homes with former partners mm-hmm. or had housemates Yeah, and I was going into this on my own and I was... I was scared. Mm-hmm. You know, this was new terrain for me. So all of these things were happening at the same time. I became very ill with a um, lung infection for a while. And um, I also just recently, you know, we wrapped up a, a tour with Bob Seeger, And um, his, his final show was in uh, Philadelphia a few weeks ago. And so... I, it's uh, safe to say I was brought to my knees. Yeah. And I decided I didn't want to live that way anymore and that I was completely aware of where I had fallen short in my own life mm-hmm. with my relationships, not just the last one, Yeah, and with my relationship with my parents. Mm-hmm. I realized I didn't really know them, and I wanted to. I actually uh, reached out to my father and wrote um, an eight-page letter. Oh. And he took a month with that, as he should, to sit with it and was really open to um, healing our wounds and wrote me back and has written me another short letter since and 
caring for my mother now. I'm getting to know her and I'm getting to know myself through her. Yeah. I'm seeing why I am the way I am. Mm -hmm. And I've inherited some wonderful, just amazing things through this extraordinary woman who was ahead of her time. And I've also inherited some things from my parents that I'd like to change. Yeah. So I've learned a lot. Yeah. So that's a lot. Um, <laughs> It's what? nothing. It's fine. All the days work. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, there's a lot to unpack even more there. Um, the dissolution of a 12-year relationship mm -hmm. and um, I think paired with um, really facing and uh, your parents means there's a lot of mirrors held up. So what did you Ugh. learn? What, what are the deepest lessons that have come out of this, whether those are together or separate realizations? Hmm. Through my parents, I would say that <laughs> on the surface, what I've learned through my mother is no wonder I migrate to um, home rehabbing <laughs> Okay. because my mother was the one that was rehabbing our basement when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. And she would cut the drywall in the driveway by herself and carry it down the stairs and hang drywall and put down carpet and put in a sink and and people would would ask my father about it and he would sheepishly reply that well no I'm I, I didn't do any of that. That's that's not in my dad's wheelhouse. Yeah. And I get that. My dad is a very you know, um he's a people person and outgoing and gregarious mm -hmm. and um so I learned that I have that skill through my mother, mm -hmm. and I, I can have the gift of gab through my father as well, which is a good thing, even though I'm an introvert, really. And on a soul level, I learned that my mother is just a very, very kind person, and that she also does care what people think. Mm -hmm. And I think, I hate to use this word, but for lack of a better one at this moment, to a fault. Yeah. And that she is an anxious person and that the cognitive decline in her, I'm seeing how it manifests the most, is anxiety. Okay. And I realize that I have those traits within mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. on, a, on a genetic level and just even a emotional level mm -hmm. that I need to really pay attention to and keep in check. It's why I started meditating yeah. this year, even if I can only do it for three minutes because I am just squirrel. Yeah. You know, suddenly I'm off and running with my attention deficit issues. Yeah, I got you. And um, so that has helped. It's also helped me to unravel my parents' life and when they got a divorce and what they both went through. And at the time, I was angry. Mm -hmm. And I was angry with my father for leaving and how it happened. And it was, a very, it was very much a controversy in our, our hometown at the time, a small town of Port Huron. And... But now that I have stumbled upon some things and letters and information through other family members and through my parents, I have empathy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I had empathy before. Mm. I think I had sympathy. Yeah. And I felt sorry for people and I'd step up and be there for them, but I wasn't really present. I didn't think about how it felt to be in their shoes. Mm. So now... 
I understand more so what happened between my parents and how complex it was at the time and why my father behaved the way that he did with the family Mm. and why he wasn't able to really own what he did and apologize at the time. Mm. And I understand now what my mother went through and the public shame that she felt Mm. and how her religious beliefs, how her church helped hold her up through that time, as did her best friends. Mm -hmm. I didn't see any of that as a teenager when it happened. Sure. And it was splashed on the front page of the paper. Wow. And I was working in a convenience store at the time, so I listened to people's opinion of my family with them not knowing who I was. Oh, my gosh. And it was brutal. Yeah. And so I was angry. And I, I think I, from that moment on, it really just, like I said, it just changed the trajectory of my life. Mm-hmm. And um, I carried that into every relationship. Yeah. But now I see that we all fall, fall short. Sure. We're all human. And um, I'm very culpable uh, for where I fell short in my relationships and almost to a point where it's really haunted me and I've wanted to make amends mm-hmm. and am starting to and going back in my life. And sometimes I know amends is it's just change behavior. But I also know that when I wrote that letter to my father and he reached back and owned what he did and apologized, it really helped me to move forward. Yeah. And to finally let that go and to forgive him. Yeah. And he's a wonderful man and has a wonderful heart and made a very poor decision mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, for some reason he wasn't able to own his part in it. I think it was almost too painful. Yeah. For him to do that. Yeah. So it sounds like in seeing them as human, and messy and complicated, Mm -hmm. you can then see your own messy humanness. Absolutely. And I think what has been the most difficult in my life as far as forgiveness is concerned is forgiving myself Mm -hmm. for choices I've made in the past, for shutting down Mm -hmm. my emotions, Mm -hmm. for not being, you know, empathetic to others Mm -hmm. and realizing that now I know that it serves no purpose for me to hold myself there yeah, and to forgive myself and know that I did the best I could, as corny as it sounds, that saying that used to annoy me, but somebody put it into perspective for me that coming from the level of consciousness that I was operating from, yeah, I did the best I could. Yeah, that's really yeah. it, isn't mm-hmm. it? And uh, Brene Brown talks about that. And it's such a shift to really look at the people and the things that have happened to you mm-hmm. and to try to shifted that perspective. And it doesn't mean condoning behavior. It doesn't mean that what happened to you is okay if it was traumatic um, in some way or another. But but that is a beautiful way of saying it, that level of consciousness Mm -hmm. that people were working from. So in your relationships, when you're looking backward, what are the big lessons there then? Like, what are you going back to make amends about? Um, To, especially to my very first girlfriend. um, Mm -hmm. And I met her when I was 14. And I just fell head over heels. Yeah. And she's just an extraordinary human. And um, we were together for a good 14 years. Wow. I know. That's incredible. I know. We really got along well, but also I really checked out to the relationship because of the pain that I was going through. 
And I would want to go back and apologize to her for that yeah. because she was really a, a wonderful person. And we were kids. Yeah. And I did see her at her mother's funeral. And I know that I had left in a way that I regret when I left the relationship, but I have to hand it to her. She just looked at me and opened her arms mm. and welcomed me. And I thought that is something I aspire to. Yeah. That's an amazing human. Yeah. Oh, I went out in the car and just sobbed. I was yeah. so grateful and so sorry that I'd missed out on that beautiful family for so many years. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that's so tragic about divorce or breakups, what have you, is we not only lose the partner, we many times lose their family. Oh, yeah. And they helped raise me. Yeah. And that was, and that was something I just, it was too painful to even address so I just shut down to it. Mm -hmm. I shut myself off. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that um, the area that I really want to address more than any in my relationships is to speak my mind, speak my truth, to communicate. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. And I know that withholding that is a, a form of abuse. Yeah. You know, there's many forms of abuse and there's, you know, betrayal, there's, you know, withholding, there's, and I just didn't have the tools. I didn't know how to express myself. So when I was hurt, I would just shut down. Mm -hmm. That was my default setting. Yeah. I didn't even know it. Yeah. And I would push people away mm -hmm. and I was not accessible. And, um, you know, there's been betrayals and I've been on every side of that triangle. Sure. And I'm not proud to say that, but I have. And I also know that I will never be that person again. Mm -hmm. I will not put myself in that position to be subjected to it. And I will not be the person putting somebody else through that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, um, I relate to all of that. I'm definitely similar in the withholding because difficult communication and conflict is really uncomfortable for me. Mm -hmm. So I've learned a lot through that and still probably have a lot of grow room. What struck me some, I don't remember who told me this, some wise person um, recently told me that within every marriage or every relationship, even if you don't physically divorce, there are probably, you know, thousands of tiny um, divorces and uh, reunions, right? Mm -hmm. And that like within that, those that 14 years and all those ways that we unintentionally divorce one another in tiny moments mm -hmm. or in year-long disconnects or all of those things, but that, that, that every relationship has that ebb and flow. And I don't think we're given permission to really understand that, that the world feeds us this idea that relationships are supposed to be a certain way mm -hmm. and that that contraction and expansion and separation and coming back together exists within every relationship that has any amount of depth. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And I think we're in a disposable society now too, and people don't want to put the work in yeah. the effort and it is hard. And, you know, a regret that I have as well is that I taught people how to treat me. Yes. I really did. And I put up with things that I never should have. Mm -hmm. And, um, I know that once I realize now within any relationship, be it a friendship, uh, a family member, mm -hmm. uh, intimate partner, I will never allow somebody to disrespect me again, Yeah. but I have to respect myself mm -hmm. and establish those boundaries. And I didn't have them before. Yeah. Good old Dr. Phil. <laughs> I remember him saying something to the effect of like, we like we are, we create the relationship and that you we tell do. exactly how you want to be treated and how you're willing to be retreat, yeah. treated. Yeah. And that like, I, oh, that always stuck with me. Like 
you can act as if you're the victim in the relationship, but you chose to play that role and yes. to take on that that those behavior patterns, you know, and just that sense of I keep coming back and talk about it a lot in class and like this idea of just radical responsibility. Like I mm-hmm. am in charge of me at yeah. all times. And that's yeah. really all I can work from, you know? I look back on that person that I was three years ago and I think, who who was that? Yeah. And now I I have to watch myself because my friends will just look at me and think they're proud of me, but at the same time, they go, oh, oh, Barb's getting up from the table. Here she goes. She's going to go say something to somebody, you know, because I'm just, <laughs> I'm fed up with mean people. Yeah. I am fed up with controlling rude people. Yeah. And I have a high level of tolerance. Uh-huh. And I remember one time I was at a thrift store with my mother. I love thrift stop yeah. shopping. <laughs> Big thing for me now. Yeah. And we were in line and she had a senior coupon. And she forgot to give it to the woman before she started to ring up her purchases. And then my mother presented it very, very timid. Yeah. And to the woman behind the counter. And the woman just annihilated my mother, just reprimanded her. And you're supposed to hand this out at the beginning of your... And I went, oh, hell no. Mm -hmm. I said, here's how this is going to go down. Right. To the woman behind the (laughs) counter. My mother grabbed her purse, her bag, and just like scurried out to the car. Right. Like she couldn't Couldn't even even handle this confrontation because she could see that this was going to blow Shit was going down. Shit was going down. (laughs) You know, which I think she's proud of that, but she also, that's not in her, that's not in her DNA. Yeah. And so I just asked for the manager. Mm -hmm. And these women were standing behind me and they were snapping their fingers in the air and saying, oh, hell no, no, Mm -hmm. nobody's going to disrespect your mother. (laughs) I said, exactly. Yep. And I realized that I was starting to learn how to stand up for myself through my mother because I couldn't do it for myself yet. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you were to disrespect her, mm-hmm. either one of my parents, mm-hmm. that I would stand up for them. Yeah. And it felt good. Mm-hmm. But I didn't do it in a way that I was annihilating her as well. Sure, sure. I thought I was very tactful and calm. And, you know, so I do that more so now because I can't bear to not respect myself anymore Mm -hmm. I can't I think that's such an interesting point about you could do it first for her right and like stand you could stand in in your power for her Mm -hmm. and then that taught you how to stand in your own power and I think that's how parents of children also feel right that like you learn to be a mama bear and learn to advocate for your child and Mm -hmm. then hopefully then you learn to then advocate for yourself in those so same ways but most I don't think most people are really working to bridge that gap. No, right? I it's don't. It's so much easier to externalize and do it for somebody else and something else. And that's still so much of what we're talking about in this conversation. And I feel like the whole point of this podcast is like, and I've been talking about this in class too, like if you imagine your attention um, as like a percentage, right? Most of us are 51% or more focused on the outside world. And mm-hmm. what, what, what I hope to do as somebody who teaches yoga and having these conversations on this podcast and just being who I am in the world and for my own self is to tip that scale so that I've got 51 plus hopefully more like 60 or 70 percent focused on this internal compass yes um, than this external world right and so that my inner world and my inner values and who I am and what my soul is calling me to do hold more weight than somebody Mm -hmm. in line who I'm dating, whatever, like all these ways, what somebody else thinks of me. I, th- I think that's like, that's how we change this world. 
Absolutely. I agree. And that's what I'm trying to do as well. And I, I think it's absurd that we, I worry what people think at times, because most of the time they've moved on to something else and they're obsessed with what other people are thinking about them. And we're not even thinking about that. 100%. <laughs> I think I always make the analogy that we are always, we like in yoga, because people are so worried that somebody's going to care what they are doing in yoga. And I can assure you, they, are they don't not give paying a attention shit to you. what you're doing. Right. No. But it reminds me of like middle school and you have the zit and you're certain everyone cares about your and zit. They can see your zit. And the whole thing <laughs> is everybody else is worrying about their own damn zit. Yes. You know? Yes. And so like, that is still us, mm -hmm. you know? Nobody else really cares about what you're doing unless it affects them. And hopefully what we're learning to do as more awake humans yes. is get our world right and get our focus right so that we can then be empathic and yes. empathetic to other people in the world and care. Um, and I just keep hearing this reminder with what you're saying is that as we heal ourselves, we help heal one another, right? Mm -hmm. Like you make it easier to heal for someone else to heal. So as you stand in your power and your friends watch you, they're going to think, okay, I'm going to channel my inner Barbara, mm -hmm. even though maybe they already do that to some extent and they're proud of you. Mm -hmm. I bet that also rings true for them that you step into that power and then the rest of us can follow that lead too. Yes. You know? Well, I hope, I mean, I'd like to be able to inspire people in that way and also, I would say to them, you should have somebody with a lot of bail money because I, I foresee myself being arrested someday, it's okay. <laughs> which I'll be proud of. But, yeah. you know, yeah. I and on another topic, I we were talking about this earlier before you started recording that I now see that I have lived a life of being surrounded by narcissists. Yeah. And I remember going into my therapist and saying to her, oh, my God am I a narcissist? She mm -hmm. said, oh no, honey, you're a codependent neurotic. <laughs> Is that better? And that's why I said, what exactly does that? And then I get into my car and no sooner do I get in the car that I'm looking up on Google and yeah, yeah. researched it and thought, okay, all right. I, I, yeah, yeah. I recognize all those things and I can, I can work on this. There's hope for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, I realized that I was surrounded by that behavior throughout my entire life and also attracted to people mm -hmm. that have those tendencies. We all have them. Sure. Trust me. Sure. You know, enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? Right. You right. know, kind of syndrome, but it's whether or not you reside there on a daily basis. Right. And yeah, it's, it's so interesting when you start to see your patterns in life. Mm -hmm. And the best thing you can do is to focus on your shit and what you need to clean up. Totally. Because it's ridiculous to think that we can change somebody else because it's so hard to change ourselves. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. But you can. And I get frustrated when I hear people, this whole cop out of, well, people can't change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm here to tell you because I've had a profound shift in my life and in my behavior in the past three years. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful. Yeah. But it's hard. Yeah. What it does that look like for you? What has it looked like? What does it look like today? That, you know, it's embarrassing to say, but I, I really came from my, the Peter Pan syndrome. I mm -hmm. did. I, I, I really hadn't grown up yet. Mm -hmm. And I realized it was because to some extent when that tragedy occurred within our family on an emotional level and, you know, being in print and the reporters coming to our house that... Um, I think that's where I really started to, where I stopped growing emotionally. Mm -hmm. I think I just became stunted and stuck in that time. Yeah. And I never dealt with it. Yeah. And I carried it over into my relationships, as I said before. And 
that now I am doing these things. Like mm-hmm. finally in my fifties, purchasing a home on my own. Yeah. And I was embarrassed to to share that at first. And I thought, well, why? Yeah. No time like the present. And I'm moving forward. And I started to realize that I'm capable, mm-hmm. that I don't have to rely on other people, mm-hmm. that I want to fully take care of myself mm-hmm. and be independent and be emotionally evolved. Mm-hmm. And to know that I can honor myself and teach other people how to treat me. Mm-hmm. And also that, um, you know, being somebody that also I had a, a learning disability and never found out until, well, I didn't find out until about, <laughs> I guess it was about, about three years ago okay. when yeah. I really started to do the deep dive. And yeah. that I had always felt uh, inept mm-hmm. um, from an academic perspective. Mm-hmm. And now that I've unraveled that, I know how my brain works and how I can move forward with my own education. I want to further my education, mm-hmm. go back to school, whereas mm-hmm. I never wanted to before. Mm-hmm. And I always used to make fun of it and say, well, I hate school because my parents were teachers. And that was just a, a mask, a guise that I was hiding behind. Mm-hmm. And, and I always wanted to go back and further my education, and but never would talk about it. And so just really empowering myself yeah. and also you know, not leaning to the narcissistic side that we all have that we can tap into from time to time and being so concerned about what other people think about me and, and, um, doing something really significant with my life and making a difference in this world. And I'm still trying to find out what that is going to be, Yeah. but I know that I'm going to do something that is bigger than me. Mm, I love that. Well, I, I just feel... Why else are we here? I agree. You know, and I, I don't have children, mm-hmm. and I have nieces and uh, a nephew that I adore, but yet I want to put something back into the world mm-hmm. that is bigger than me. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that music heals, and yeah. I'm grateful for that because every time I would have the pleasure of getting up on stage with Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band, I look out to the audience and I see what a difference that makes in people's lives. And even when I go to a concert, and I can be having a horrible day, and when I hear the music and mm-hmm. watch the performer that I love, it takes me away from the difficulties of life, mm-hmm. at least for a couple hours. Yeah. It's interesting because I talk about this a lot. It's the feeling I miss from being in church. It's the yes. same feeling you get um, in a concert. And to me, it's awe. Mm-hmm. It's that, um, and there's something really unifying of like the, the unification of energy. Yes. It's a collective energy that we're all experiencing together. And a frequency is elevated because the music's mm-hmm. elevating it. And, um, that, that is that feeling. Um, it's also in a really good yoga class or, yeah. you know, a really good dinner with the girls or whatever, but that same uplift and frequency. And I think that it's really interesting that you said it takes you away. I don't think any of them are meant to take us out, right? Like people come to yoga to escape their lives for an hour. Or you go to a concert to get out of your life for an hour. I think it's to be reminded of the frequency of love, right? Or the frequency of connection. And that's a better way of putting it. Yes. I don't th- I think most of us think of it as an escape and I think that's yeah. a totally fair assessment. And I'm trying to like really grapple with that. But I like that. how you are defining that. Yeah. I, I like that idea. That resonates and yeah. Yeah. So what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> that is the, that is the interesting question. Well, actually... 
I bought a Victorian home in my hometown and moved closer to my family and, and help with my mother's care. And I'm renovating it. I have a whole upper flat that I'm going to turn into, um, put it on Airbnb or yeah. home away, something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's a and b next door to me. And they've always said to me, if you ever fix that upper flat up, which yeah. I've been <laughs> remiss on. Yeah. about working on, um, that they have overflow. Mm. And they wanted to give me some of their guests. Yeah. And at first I was hesitant, and then I started to meet their guests. Mm-hmm. They have people from all over the world yeah. coming to Port Huron, Michigan. Right. And the people, when they come out the front door and see the freighters, Mm-hmm. the look on their faces of just sheer joy and they run to the water and, yeah. and we have a park across from us and it's just, it's such a, I love my hometown, hometown yeah. and I see the renaissance that's taking place and I think in the next five to 10 years, it's just going to be, it's just going to get better. Yeah. I've seen such a shift mm-hmm. and these people that I met, see, here's my brain. This is what I'm like. I'm getting you pinball there. Machine. Listen, I'm a pinball. It, yeah, I totally I, get it. I'm with you. Thoughts all over the place. Yeah. Um, that are from all over the world have been fascinating. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, this would be interesting and exciting to open up my home to people yeah. from all over the world and to spend time with them on my front porch and watch mm-hmm. the freighters. Mm-hmm. And I get chills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you'll have to come up, but um, I will. No, I, I think I hear what you're saying. Number one, the other piece that for me is water. Is like Lake, Lake Michigan creates that same awe. That I, I have get to have it. water around me. Yeah, I do. Yep, yep, that's important to me. Yeah, I think that's beautiful, and that um, people are always surprised at how big the lakes are. So mm-hmm. if they're from other places, that it looks like the ocean. Um, and I think what I'm hearing from you is that it's ultimately connection, right? And that yes. that's um, a very it's very important to me. Yeah, I felt very disconnected for a long time, and. I won't stop music. I know that I want to keep writing and recording mm-hmm. and performing. You know, and I want to go back to school. What so. are you going to go back to school for? I don't know. Oh my God, I love this. I don't know <laughs> yet. I'm still, yeah, I'm still, you know, decompressing from the tour yeah. being over. And I'm I'm still holding hope that he'll change keep his going. mind at some point. Yeah. <laughs> what's it like being on tour with Bob Seger? Oh my and God. that what's that experience taught for you, taught you? How did you get that gig? It's the greatest gift I never could have imagined. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I grew up singing into the, you know, curling iron because I wanted a cord, yeah. not just the hairbrush, curling iron mm-hmm. and practicing my routine in front of the mirror for years and listening to Bette Midler. Um, so I always saw myself on a stage, mm-hmm. a big stage. Never could I have imagined singing for one of my heroes. Sure. I mean, I got. I used to sit and listen to my transistor radio and listen to CKLW and listen mm-hmm. to Bob Seger. Mm-hmm. So when I joined the band, God, I joined the Silver Bullet band. That's so cool. I still yeah. can't believe. I still can't <laughs> believe it. Um, I knew the songs. Yeah. Well, most of them. There were a couple I didn't know that my ex made fun of me, which is hilarious at the time. Yeah. And how do you not know um, Sunspot Baby? I didn't know that one. But um, I was singing at the railroad crossing. Mm-hmm. And Bob's manager came in with his wife. Mm. And I love that he came into a gay bar on 8 Mile. A dive gay to bar. To see me. Mm-hmm. And then I had his number early on. I knew right away when I met him who he was. 
and that he was playful. And so I started flirting with his wife in front of him. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I was just pulling his leg. Yeah. What the hell? Mm -hmm. And we just got along famously and became friends. And it was actually my sound man at the time, um, Glenn Olds, that um, Glenn Preston, I'm sorry, Glenn Olds was a bass player I worked with, um, that told him about me. Hmm. And so he came in and just kind of put my name and number in his back pocket Mm -hmm. because Bob wasn't touring at the time. He was taking time off with his family. And then I got a call one day from his manager, Punch, and he said, here's where you show up. I didn't even know what I was getting into. And Bob walked in and I tried not to faint. And he said, hi, I'm Bob. And I said, yes, I know. (laughs) I'm Barbara. And then we went up into his cabin studio and started recording and that's when I met Laura Creamer one of his longtime singers that has now become one of my dear friends and uh, Thornetta Davis was mm-hmm. in on that session Wow! and we sang together and then I got another call that they wanted me to show up to Mark rehearsals because his other singer Sean Murphy wasn't able to come into town at the time and so I thought I was just marking time mm-hmm. and rehearsals and never in a million years did I think I was being considered for the tour. So they were putting me through the paces and I didn't know it. And uh, Which is probably better. Oh my God, yes. Because uh-huh. I, as I told you, I'm a nervous person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Punch just took me aside after one of the rehearsals and said, it's yours to lose. Whoa. No yeah. pressure. And I was thrown in to this world that, I mean, we played The Tonight Show. We played Jimmy Kimmel. We played The View. I mean, yeah, Letterman. How long have you been doing this? Thirteen years. Wow, I did not realize you've thirteen been doing years, this that long. and it's been extraordinary. Yeah, and this last leg of the tour was just bittersweet because I don't know. I did, I, I wasn't ever under the impression it was going to go on forever. But you hope these things never end, mm-hmm. and they do. And mm-hmm. Pine Knob. The shows we played at Pine Knob, I can't even explain to you the energy. Just, it was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Everybody said that. And mm-hmm. it was such an amazing, historic event to be part of. And Bob is just wonderful to work for. And the band, the crew, everyone, they've mm-hmm. just become part of my family. Mm. Yeah, I already told them that in 2020, I'm just going to couch surf. Yeah. I'm just going to go stay with everybody <laughs> in the band and crew right. at some point. They're sweet. not rid of me yet. Oh, that's so sweet. Mm-hmm. What are the spiritual lessons of the road then and in that um, those experiences for you? Mm, the spiritual lessons of the road. I like that. The road can be lonely. Mm-hmm. It's exciting. And you're in front of fifteen to 20,000 people. And then you go back to a hotel room by yourself. Yeah. It taught me to... It's important to be grounded. Mm-hmm. And I was meditating out on the road as well. And that... As you said before, connection, it's so important to me. So reaching out to my Seeger family, Mm -hmm. and it taught me to be more open-minded because these are not people that I necessarily would have connected with otherwise. Mm -hmm. And it opens up your aperture to so many different types of people and experiences. And I never was a person that would seek out strangers to engage with. Mm. And out on the road, I did. And I would just go sit up at the bar to eat my dinner so that I could start to talk to other people around me, which was very hard for me. Mm -hmm. I have a difficult time. I don't like going to parties. Yeah. 
because you're going to find me in the corner with a cat or your dog and that's, and I'm going to fall asleep early, (laughs) you know, narcolepsy. (laughs) And so I just decided it's time to just engage more with people Mm -hmm. and let them see me and see them and to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And what do you have to lose? Mm -hmm. Not to isolate myself so much. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, as far as a spiritual level, I'm not quite sure how to put that. No, I think that is. I think yeah. that's a huge thing to put yourself out there and to be vulnerable. I think vulnerability is a deeply spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And to recognize, I think, that probably the last three years that you've been working with Savior and single, mm-hmm. right? Yes. That's different, right? You don't have somebody to it lean is. on. And yeah. um, to, to call into your hotel room or to call from your hotel room yeah. and um, really leaning into those opportunities as opportunities of expansion and connection in a different Mm -hmm. way. I I think there's limitations sometimes in the comfort of our relationships. And I don't mean that we shouldn't have them Mm -hmm. because there's lots of growth within those too, if we choose that. But certainly I can imagine myself, I would have been the same way, right? I would have just gone back to my room, watched some TV, decompressed and let it be, but that you put yourself out there. I tried to. Yeah. I tried. And what I also realized is that no matter what city we went to, what town we went to, we, it would run the gamut. We would be staying at a Shangri-La in Toronto or we'd go stay in a embassy suites in a small town somewhere. Mm-hmm. There's something to see in every single city. Mm. And there are interesting people everywhere. Sure. Yeah. And that was a real gift for me to be open to and being single. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say it was easy at times. There's times when you, you get done with the show and... You know, you can't believe that you're at Madison Square Garden and, and Bruce Springsteen is standing in the guitar section and the, yeah. with the text and watching you. And you want to get off the stage and go back to your room and share it with somebody. Yeah. And then it's just quiet. Yeah. You know, and um, so instead there were times when I just wasn't really ready to go to bed and you're still jacked up from the night. So sure. I would go down to the bar and hang out with my bandmates mm-hmm. or... You know, just people that you would meet on the road sometimes, and, and everybody has an interesting story if you're willing to hear it. I think that's exactly it. Yeah. I, that, I mean, that's the heart of this podcast, too, is that everyone has an interesting story. Everyone has... Um, so it's, We have so much in common with one another, right? Like, it's so relatable, but if we're not sharing our stories, then we feel really isolated and alone yeah. in them. Yeah. And um, I think humanness... There's, there's so much similarity and that there's no reason we should feel so alone. And mm-hmm. that is what I hope to continue to help people see, right? You are. You are. I love Thank your you. podcast. Thank you. I do. Appreciate that. Because um, we're not meant to do this alone and um, none of it. And, and we're also not meant to do it in the confines of our mind mm-hmm. or in the closet of our shame or any of those places, you know? And yeah. so um, thank you for coming and sharing vulnerably with us. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Any last thoughts before you? (sighs) I don't know. Maybe we can do a follow-up when I figure out what I want to be when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm still working on it too. I think you've, what's interesting is like, just like you've already, like to imagine yourself on a stage, right? And then to manifest that big of a thing that you didn't even know you were going for, right? Like this is the lesson from the universe often that we hear, which is don't put a confine on what it is that you want because then you limit the universe's ability to to deliver it to you. You do. And it's not always going to look the way you thought it would. No. You know, you don't have to picture it down to the last detail necessarily. Mm -hmm. If you had told the eight-year-old me that I was going to meet Bette Midler someday, who has had the greatest influence on Mm. me, I wouldn't have believed you. Right. But I did. Right. And it was extraordinary, and she wasn't a bitch, and that was a bonus. <laughs> right. 
was like, oh, thank God, because then I'm going to have to find somebody else to admire, you know. So, yeah, and I never could have imagined myself up on stage with Seeger. Yeah. And the people I got to meet through him, not just celebrities, you know, but just the crew, like I said, they're just extraordinary. I mean, yeah, we walk onto that stage and we we get all the, the praise coming back at us. But these people behind the scenes, they're it's the Jackson Brown song. They are the first in and the last to leave. And yeah. they're extraordinary. Yeah. And we wouldn't be up there without them. Right. And I met these really amazing people mm-hmm. that are under the radar and just, you know, we joke about in the band how um, the crew, they're more refined than the band. And if you really want to know where the cool places are to go, that you need to go talk, them. talk to the crew, ask yeah. them. You know, but I, I I couldn't have imagined any of this, even though I saw myself on a big stage someday. Mm-hmm. And I, I also realized that at first, people might think, and I, I was one of those people, that it's your ego that puts you up on that stage. Mm. And yes, you do need an ego to be able to get up in front of people. Hopefully, you keep it in check. And um, I later realized that it wasn't so much about that for me. It was being accepted and being seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why I chose this profession. And I have a, a deep appreciation, a love of music. But that wasn't the biggest reason as mm-hmm. to why I pursued a life in the spotlight for so many years. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have so many thoughts about this. Number one, I think you did it because it was a call of your soul and you answered it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that like giving people permission to have those desires and dreams that seem um, big and recognizing that I, I have this conversation with my friend Lori all the time that like ego is different um, like there's a humility in that call for you, right? Like you just felt like you, that was, you weren't doing it. Maybe you were doing it to be validated and seen in some ways, but it was not to, but not the same way that's ego, right? Right. And I, initially that was it that I came to realize. But then when you have people come up to you and say that they heard one of your songs and I wrote a song about coming out. And a young woman came up to me at a place, do you remember a place called Stilettos? I sure I do. I thought maybe it was before your time. No, we were just in that neighborhood the other oh day. My God. And I was laughing about Stilettos. Yes. Well, I, I um, played that song and a young woman came up to me and said, I brought my mom into the bar tonight. Would you mind doing that song? Because that's how I came out to her. I played it for her. Mm, I get chills. That's when my perception of why I was up there and why it really mattered mm-hmm. shifted. Mm-hmm. And it was so much bigger than anything I could have imagined. And just even touching one person, it, it, it really mattered to me. And I just remember getting into the car on the way home and just crying and thinking, my gosh, um, it helped her to come out. And I, don't, I think you underestimate the impact you had as an out uh, performer, musician, in, in the, the era that you were in, right? I'm, like, I'm sure I do because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I understand that <laughs> because that. it isn't ego-driven, right? Do you see <laughs> my point? And this is my point because I even just doing a podcast or being somebody who does more public speaking or being somebody who's trying to be part of the global conversation of spirituality, like those things um, would always, and even the idea of yoga liberty, which has always made me really uncomfortable, which is why I never pursued that avenue because it felt, I feel so many people do it um, poorly because mm-hmm. it is ego driven. And that when we're calling, when we're answering the call of the soul, it's, it, you have to have an ego to do it. Yes. Cause it creates that action and yeah. it helps us embody as human beings and be human. Right. But that that drive is from a different place. And, um, I've always seen that in you. It never felt 
Mm-hmm. Even as, you know, before I knew you as as who you, as just Barbara, right? Before I knew you as that and just saw you on the stage and see saw how people reacted to you because I've mm-hmm. never been a... <laughs> no offense. A I've never been a groupie type of anyone. Um, it's just not in my DNA to, right. to be like that. But you never came off as ego-driven, right? And I guess my whole point with all of this is that if perhaps someone who's listening feels called to something that involves a bigger platform, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, we want to be in check about our egos, but we also don't want to self-limit because other people are doing it poorly, right? And like, right. and that's the whole thing because you've made such an impact in so many ways. Like, yeah, being up there with Seeger is cool, but I would venture to guess that your impact um, has been bigger simply by being yourself and showing up mm. at Stilettos and Thank Comos you. and the Railroad Crossing and Rainbow Room and all of those places that you really touched lives by being willing to be out and proud and, um, Thank you. yeah, truly. And, and, and like you said, somebody doing it poorly, don't let that, you know, impede your decisions to shine basically. And I love that quote by Marianne that everybody thinks is Nelson Mandela. I quote it all the time and I quote it as Marianne's. Yes. <laughs> and that has sustained me at times because I can have a tendency to be my, my mother's daughter mm-hmm. and to be a little shy about getting up on stage or being awkward. I still have stage fright every sure. time. And, but my father, as I said, is a more, uh, vocal person, the gregarious in, in, in the public eye. He always was. And, and he was wonderful with the, with the high school bands and actually took them to the Olympics. And so I have a little bit of both my parents in me that can be conflicting at times, mm-hmm. but I also realize that really I'm serving no purpose by playing small. Yeah. What you is know? your favorite part of that quote? That part right there. You playing small. Playing small. It serves no purpose for you to play small. Yeah. That's, it, it just resonates with me. And mm-hmm. I love what I do. I, I, I love music. I feel there's nothing like, and it doesn't always happen when you get in that zone. Mm-hmm. When you get in that zone and you look at the rest of your bandmates on stage and you just know. Yep. It's just, there's a synergy that just locked in. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like that feeling. And yeah. I think that's why, you know, people just, um, they chase that. They mm-hmm. chase that feeling and they replace it with other things that aren't as healthy at mm. times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's stepping into the flow. And for you, flow comes from that place of music, right? Mm-hmm. And other people, flow comes from somewhere else. Yeah, flow is, music for me is one of the flows and cycling. Yeah. That's a love of mine. Mm, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and deep conversation is a place of flow for me, <laughs> shockingly, <laughs> and teaching in yeah. any capacity. Um, and I think I think you're so right. I think people seek that feeling um, by either, um, you know, taking things for it or numbing out or to be, or they numb out because they can't find it. Mm-hmm. And that I just keep thinking back to, um, back to like soul's calling and this reminder that we become more alive when we step onto that path and we feel that flow because we're pulling more light in and we become more illuminated yes. and that like you in so many ways have already stepped into so much flow and now you're just going to seek a new space for flow mm-hmm. and a deeper sense of self. And connection, which is going to be that amazing. Is my, from your lips to <laughs> to, to God's ears, yes. yes. Um, I have a feeling you're going to have no problem thank creating you. what's next. Thank yeah. You. Well, thank you for this time and spending this time with me and sharing. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Oh, and I do want to say one more thing. Yeah. We do my band. Well, not my band. It's Chris Kurzawa. Yeah. Uh, he loves to put together um, bands that uh, pay 
you know, tribute, tribute. to the mm-hmm. bands that he loves. And we're doing a night of Led Zeppelin again. Okay. And we'll be at the Caju Cafe on January 31st. Fine. And the tickets are on Eventbrite. Okay. So that'll be that'll be a fun night. So if you get a chance, come on out. Fun. Not Les Zeppelin. Not Les. <laughs> they actually did call me to be their lead singer. Did they? <laughs> yeah. And I love Steph. I love the the head of the band, who's a guitar player, but yeah. I was not willing to leave Seeger. Yeah. Uh, understandably. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Anne. All right, friends. Thank you for listening all the way through. I hope you found this conversation interesting, perhaps thought-provoking, and even maybe more importantly, a little stirring. Uh, I know we touched on some touchy subjects, and uh, that is the point here, that we touch on things that we're not afraid to talk about, things that matter, and touchy subjects, and digging deep. If you are enjoying this podcast, I implore you to please like it, review it, share it, and keep expanding the reach that these conversations have. I think there's such a need in the world to get real and to get deep and to speak truth and contemplate more than just our navel. Um, So thank you for showing up and listening and hopefully um, thinking how it related to your own life. If you want to join the community, again, it is the Facebook community is called Becoming Community. Maybe I should say community just one more time. Uh, You can find out more about me and where I am on anfancy.com, and I am on all social media platforms as well, so feel free to connect with me there. I'm more likely to get to you via Facebook, but I'm upping my Instagram work as well, so reach out, connect, and um, keep your ears and eyes peeled for more upcoming workshops locally in the Detroit area. I'm working on a couple of projects here. So thank you. Have a great and beautiful day, and I hope to catch you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye.